Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. This is New Books and Science Fiction and Fantasy, part of the New Books Network. I'm Rob Wolf. Today I'm speaking with James L. Cambius, author of A Darkling Sea, his first novel. He's also a game designer and co-founder of Zygote Games. Thanks for joining me on New Books in Science Fiction and Fantasy. Glad to be here. Why don't we tell listeners a little bit about what's going on in A Darkling Sea? It's the year 2061, and... You've got three sentient species in conflict at the bottom of a very cold, dark ocean on a satellite of a distant planet. There are the humans, the Sholin, who are technologically superior to humans, and the Ilmatarans. Did I say that correctly? That's correct. Uh, and they're the native inhabitants of this dark, ice-covered sea. So I don't know if you want to maybe elaborate a little more about what's going on between them. Sure. So... The way I envisioned it is that the Sholin are imposing a kind of a Star Trek-style prime directive on the humans. They can study the Ilmatarans, but they're not allowed to make contact or make themselves known to the uh, inhabitants of the planet. So this works for a while, but unfortunately, in the first chapter, one of the humans overreaches and gets himself discovered and uh, comes to a bad end as well. I have to say it's a very compelling first chapter. It got, got me quite hooked. Well, that chapter actually I published as a, as a short story as well in um, the magazine of fantasy and science fiction, although it was always part of the novel, but I, it was a, enough of a self-contained little narrative that I could break it out and sell it separately at a time when I was despairing of being able to sell the novel. So once the humans have made contact with the Ilmatarans inadvertently, the Sholin send an investigative team to, to look into the incident, although it's pretty clear that their job really is to close down the human expedition. Because the Sholin have really a very horrible history. Pretty much every bad thing that science fiction writers have imagined humans can do to ourselves, the Sholin have probably done to themselves at some point. So they basically assume that any contact between a technologically advanced civilization and a less advanced one is going to be imperialism of some sort. So their self-appointed mission is really to protect the universe from everyone, including the humans. Now, you might note that there is, of course, a contradiction, a logical contradiction buried in this attitude, because if they're trying to prevent advanced species from meddling with less advanced ones, that means that they, as an advanced species, have to go around meddling with less advanced species. Yes, exactly. But they have managed to talk themselves into doing this. So their team arrives, led by a Sholin named Gishora, and he is assisted by Tijos, who is my main Sholin character, my viewpoint character for the Sholin. I... I envisioned the plot as sort of a game of ping pong where each one of these species basically does the worst thing possible in the eyes of the other side. So the humans adopt a program of passive resistance. They're not going to cooperate with the Sholin because they don't consider them to have any right to be there telling them what to do. 
the Sholin take this as uh, this non-cooperation as as evidence that the humans are resisting and have something to hide. So they decide to you know crank up the pressure, and then some of the humans begin a sort of some petty harassment by practical jokes, which prompts an armed response from the Sholin, which prompts active violent resistance from the humans. Uh, Gishora is along the way gets replaced by his much less sympathetic uh, second in command Irona who is much more fanatical about getting the humans off Ilmatar. It strikes me that these ideas that you're grappling with about colonialism and science and exploration and also culture clashes, you know, these are some of the issues that could come up in sociology or anthropology. You know, how far can a professional observer, like an anthropologist, how far can they go when studying another group? How, how much can or should they interfere? Well, that was something which, which concerned me. And in particular... I sort of take issue with the idea that that there are such things as more advanced and less advanced cultures and that somehow the the you know the touch of a more advanced one on the less advanced one will cause them to puff away in vapor and there's a good example of this really in sort of the ur example of a technologically superior culture conquering a less technological one and that's the the Spanish conquest of Mexico I happen to have just recently finished reading the classic history of that by uh, Prescott. And one of the striking things is that when Cortes marched into Tenochtitlan, he had something like a thousand Spaniards with him and something like 50,000 Mexicans. It was not a simple case of the, the alien invaders, so to speak, you know, overwhelming the, the locals with their technology and, and awing them. It was a group of humans negotiated with another group of humans to fight a third group of humans. And it's worth noting, you know, that even today in the Spanish nobility, there is a duchess of Montezuma. Montezuma's descendants are Spanish noblemen now. Huh. So, you know, the idea that, that we have this sort of caricature in our heads that the, the super advanced space aliens would, would somehow you know, completely overawe the primitive natives. And I just don't think that's the case. Human cultures in Earth's history, certainly show a tremendous ability to adapt to new circumstances and co-opt and make their own arrangements with, with new situations, with new arrivals. I found it fascinating that the Sholin and the humans initially kind of romanticized the Ilmatarans as these collectivists who seem to live in harmony, at least from their perspective initially, they also romanticize each other. Some of my Sholin characters really love the idea of the humans because we're such rational beings by their standards. They're very driven by sort of emotion and the desire to, to, to fit in with the rest of the group. And so they, you know, some of them, anyway, view the humans, you know, sort of, you know, we have written laws that we follow and things like that, you know, these algorithms for our behavior. And, and they're cruelly disappointed when they realize that some of the humans are not being rational, that they are also being driven by emotion. The Sholin, for instance, understand that humans think deception is a reprehensible characteristic, but they erroneously assume that humans would never deceive because they think it's so bad, but we really only think it's bad if someone deceives us, but we might go ahead and deceive someone else if it seems strategically important. So they're completely thrown off guard when some of the humans do, in fact, you know, lie. Plus, you know, people don't make rules against things they don't do. <laughs> right. Humans don't like deception because deception happens so often. <laughs> right, right, exactly. So what seems to me one of the biggest challenges you faced in, in writing this book is 
so thoroughly creating a picture of these three very different cultures. And I, I wanted to ask you about that, how you went about conveying the intricacies of these alien cultures, the Sholan, the Ilmatarans. You narrate the Ilmataran storyline by really kind of naturally and organically showing their concepts of land ownership, how they create written record by tying knots in cords. I mean, there's a moment where the main Ilmataran character has this revelation where he thinks, oh my God, these humans create words by sound. Uh, is that right? Now I don't know if I'm remembering that correctly. Well, yes, because the Ilmatarans perceive the, the world through sonar. And so their way of speaking to one another is essentially to... to send sonar images at each other. And so at one point I mentioned, you know, that, that they can learn to talk in, innately without even an adult to help them. The language for them is a universal. They all speak the same language, but their writing system is entirely arbitrary. That's a made artifact from them. So they have lots of different writing systems, but one universal language. And and it's when Broadtail, my Ilmataran protagonist, realizes that the human's speech is essentially like 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 written like the Ilmataran written language that it's you know these strings of symbols representing things rather than pictures. That's right. I found it. I mean, there's this moment where he just thinks they are writing with sound. You know, it's a revelation to him. But you you do this amazing job of sort of getting us in the heads of these different species who see the world so differently, and you explain it all. And I guess I wonder how you address that challenge. How did you decide? you know, what to include. I mean, we get a good sense of the laws that govern Ilmataran life and their lifestyle and their caste system and their inheritance rules. Early on in the process, I basically sat down and brainstormed as much as I could about the Ilmatarans. And in fact, one of my goals in writing this was to sort of write a, almost a big, realistic Tom Wolfe, you know, social panorama novel of Ilmatarans, you know, so I wanted to include as much of their society as possible. That's why we get a look at Broadtail's village. We get a look at the Longpincer's, uh, you know, personal estate. And, you know, I do go into how they farm stuff and what they, how they make stuff and, and their social arrangements. Cause I thought that was, that was the fun part when I was writing it was making, was creating all this stuff. I did try to base as much of it as I, you know, to start from their biology and sort of extrapolate outward from there. So you have a species which reproduces by spawning, which means that there's virtually no difference between the sexes, and there is absolutely no parental impulse at all. Children are, they're not quite, they're about the same level that humans view squirrels. You know, they're these, they're these minor nuisances, but you don't actually take active steps to get rid of them because they might grow up to be useful. Right, but you might eat them if you can't teach them what you need to teach them. Well, it's considered rude. You know, only wild children and barbarians actually eat each other. But it's it's a faux pas. It's not a crime or a sin. And then I came up with some, I, I had to figure out how would they write stuff. And I borrowed the idea of the not code from the Incas, as a matter of fact. I get the feeling that you admire some things about all the species. I mean, there's a, there's a sense of your even-handedness in each group. There seem to be people who are villains and there are people who are kind of more heroic, you know, have more obviously admirable traits. But I wonder if you could take some of the traits from either the Sholin or the Ilmatarans. I mean, is there anything you think humans could benefit from or learn from these two groups to make us more responsible in our future encounters with aliens if we ever have them? Well, that's interesting. I had not thought of that. But yet, see, what, what traits would I borrow from those two species? The, 
the Sholin society is is slightly artificial. They're they're actually quite fractious, but they have developed a society which suppresses that because, as I said, they've basically nearly committed species suicide on a number of occasions. So the Sholin society is almost a reaction to their natural impulses. Their natural impulses are much more sort of passionate and emotional. I mean, you know, they're, they, they have these highly sexualized relationships, and I'm not sure that that would work very well for humans, but um, they certainly are better at, I guess, combining personal affection and personal ties with... Uh, other relationships so that their, their, their society is not nearly it's not going to be nearly as impersonal as ours that's something which you see a lot of people yearning for in modern society is is you know wouldn't it be great if we could have more of a personal connection with everybody right it seems like when you when anyone has to work together in the shown society they immediately become intimate in ways even sexually that we wouldn't necessarily as humans what we call sexual harassment they consider effective management Right, exactly. Uh, the Ilmatarans, on the other hand, with their virtu- essentially asexual society, and of course this is not accidental, right? You know, one way to distinguish them was to basically make them poles apart in that respect with the humans in the middle. The, the Ilmatarans are very pragmatic, very um, inquisitive, and I sort of tried to imply that they might be smarter than we are. They figure, they're the ones who figure things out for the most part. And they seem to have a, a respect. Well, I guess all all of them have a respect for learning. That's the thread that draws beings from these three different species together. Ultimately, is you know, that's that's the one thing they do have in common is, right. is science, right. desire to learn, and that ultimately lets the humans get in touch with the Ilmatarans and work together. And it ultimately leads to some key decisions that the Sholin characters, some of the Sholin characters make, which I'm not going to spoil the ending of the book. And again, it's you know based on love of science. Love of of knowledge. Uh, one of the interesting things about the setup is that the Ilmatarans, because they don't see visible light or they don't see they don't see light, the humans in the Sholin theoretically, if their clothing, their habitats have the proper coating, then they're radar proof, and the Ilmatarans basically can't see them at all, so they can sort of move among them, and that made me think of ghosts. I couldn't help but think of think of something like that, that maybe there are aliens standing next to us, but because we lack that essential sense to perceive them, some sixth sense, uh, we can't detect their existence. Well, it's not quite that the humans in Sholin can be invisible. That's one of the mistakes that one of the characters makes early in the book. The humans in the Sholin can make themselves dark. They can make themselves silent and not echo back. It's as if you're wearing a big black drape over you. Right. And, you know, so in the dark, you're invisible. But if you're in a well-lit area, then you're an obvious black object. And that's, that's what happens with, the, uh, with one of early in the story with um, a human who is attempting to be stealthy. The Ilmatarans can perceive that there is something they can't perceive there. Right, right. So it's an invisibility cloak that really is more like a, it's like a hole in space. Yes, it's a. They can make an almost perfectly black coating, but that's not the same as invisible. So there are no ghosts. In other words, that's what you're trying to tell me. Well, I don't know. There could be ghosts standing next to you. I read that there were delays in the publication of the Darkling Sea. Were you worried it might never see the light of day? Well, it wasn't so much a delay in the publication. Once Tor Books accepted it, things moved along very swiftly. The delay was 
basically they at first didn't want to buy it because when I was first shopping the manuscript around back in, this would have been something like 2007, I think. That was the period when the real estate market was collapsing. Um, Borders Books, the book, one of the major book chains had gone out of business right around then. Publishing was first starting to feel the pinch from online sales, I think. And so I think there was a fear that they weren't sure that they could publish anything. <laughs> you know, they, they were not buying a lot of books right then. You know, they, were, they were being very cautious and retrenching, and they weren't going to take on a new writer just then. That I found very dispiriting. Um, but, you know, I sort of shrugged and went on to the, my next project. But did they say, oh, we love the book and we wish we could publish it? So they sort of, you had some hopes and were holding on? Well, yes. My editor, uh, the editor who acquired it, David Hartwell, told me that he liked the book, but that they weren't sure that they could buy it. And then later on, he could buy it. So did he come back to you or did your agent keep reminding him that the book was out there? Well, I didn't actually get an agent until right about the time David Hartwell bought the book. So you you brought it to the editor yourself, right? Initially, I had printed out you know all five hundred manuscript pages and put it in a mailer and mailed it to him, and he did whatever editors do with manuscripts. Eventually, he got back to me and said, "Look, we can't. They won't let me buy it. I don't know who they is." But and so then a few years went by. I acquired an agent, and right about the time I acquired an agent, Mr. Hartwell got back in touch with me. He had actually was having a little mini science fiction convention at his bookshop over in um, uh, upstate New York. I think the town is Westport. And he asked me to be one of the guests because I, it's not that far a trip for me. So I was there along with Gregory Benford, and we had this sort of little micro mini convention. And um, at that, he asked if he could see Darkling Sea again, which, of course, I said yes, not being an idiot. Very good. That's great. It's amazing the circuitous routes books can take to publication. Oh, yes, compared with, some, compared with some books, this was lightning fast. You know, I forget how many times, uh, you know, some great classic works were sent from publisher to publisher and bounced each time. You know. So you're a game designer, and I wonder if game designing skills, do they come in handy when you're writing a novel? Do, do they help you with pacing or creating strategy for your characters? Actually, it helped and it hurt at the same time. It helped in that it gave me a good attention to world building because that's most of the role playing game stuff that I've written has been source books. You know, I don't I don't generally write the rules. I write about settings. So, you know, this naturally sort of focused me on creating settings and the stuff you have to think about for a setting. Um, So that was all good. But role playing games actually are a terrible model for um, fiction in terms of the way they progress, because role-playing games are stories of incremental success, right? To use Dungeons and Dragons examples, you know, you you defeat the orcs and you gain experience and you gain some treasure, and then you defeat the hobgoblins and you gain some more experience and you gain some more treasure, and then you can tackle the displacer beast and you gain more experience and treasure, and finally you can tackle the the Umber Hulk and then the dragon. Whereas fiction, a story that worked that way would seem kind of dull and repetitive, right? In fiction, if anything, things get continually worse for the characters until they finally pull it out in the last inning. And I had to sort of unlearn the role-playing game structure of, of a story in order to actually figure out how to write a fiction, uh, an actual story. And your story has a lot of plots and subplots, too. So there must have been a lot of... I was thinking in a game and perhaps in creating the setting and background for a game, there's a lot of details and things you have to organize. And I thought it might come in handy as well 
as you are creating the plot, the narrative, because each of the three groups also within their own worlds have their own conflicts and um, narrative trajectories. Yes, um, that was a case where, though, I, I wrote each, in, in a sense, I wrote each strand sort of on its own. I mean, obviously, there are scenes where the characters interact, but I, I tended to write it, you know, I would write a bunch of Tijo scenes, and then I write a bunch of Broadtail scenes, and then I'd write some Rob Freeman scenes to kind of keep track of of their internal narrative. I, I learned a lot about how to write fiction in the course of writing Darkling Sea, and one of the things I learned was that I needed to pay more attention to my outlining. And there were a couple of occasions when I kind of lost track of what I was doing. And then, did you have to throw out what you did? Or? Well, it was more that I forgot to put stuff in <laughs> when I when I finished my first first my negative one draft if you will and let my wife read it she said it's good except that you didn't have you don't have a middle of this story i was working with a very loose outline and ever since then i have tried to have a much more detailed outline so that i can better control what i'm doing so let me ask you about zygote games i I noticed on the website and that's the company that you co-founded right According to the website, it seeks to create games that incorporate scientific principles into the actual rules of the game. And I wonder, what's the mission, uh, the larger mission? Is it to get kids more interested in science or more educated about science? Right. The goal, to sum up the goal in kind of coarse terms, it's to show that science games don't have to be lame. Because when we were first starting to, to plan this business, my wife and I took a field trip to the New York Toy Fair one year. And we looked at the science games on display and were kind of horrified at how the ones that were fun were not educational and the ones that were educational were not fun. And even the ones that were educational were not very educational. And the ones that were fun were not at all educational. We were working on the game that became Bone Wars, which is a a dinosaur fossil hunting card game. And there were a bunch of dinosaur-themed card games on the market already. And I was appalled to discover that they were all basically variations on, oh, hearts or crazy eights or some other 52-card deck game, just with dinosaurs replacing numbers or suits or whatever. But you weren't learning anything about dinosaurs except for the dinosaur trivia printed on the card. Whereas I wanted to make a game where the actual game is replicates some of what you're trying to teach. So Bone Wars is part of the turn you spend collecting dinosaur bones and you can use cards to do all the things that real life 19th century paleontologists accused each other of doing. I don't know if they ever actually did some of those things, but like cheating, like taking bones from current animals and pretending they're old, that kind of thing? Well, it wasn't so much that as stealing fossils from each other or hiring away skilled expedition staff or dynamiting fossil beds. Wow. A lot of this comes from one interview that Edward Drinker Cope gave late in his career. Um, It was one of these career-destroying interviews where he basically sat down with a New York, I think it was a New York Herald reporter, and basically gave vent to a whole lifetime's worth of resentments in one interview and made all kinds of accusations, particularly against his great rival, Othniel Charles Marsh. I suppose it's important for you also to incorporate scientific principles into your science fiction as well. Do do you do a lot of research? 
Oh, yes. I mean, I, I'm the sort of person who does way too much research. I will allow myself some waves of the magic wand. Darkling Sea has faster than light travel. I'm aware that that's probably not really possible, but I wanted to have more or less contemporary t- humans dealing with aliens and without essentially a magic faster than light drive, we weren't going to have that. Right. So you allow uh, some flexibility, but otherwise you try to stick to science? Oh, yes. As much as possible. Although, I mean, if that's if I am writing science fiction, I've written some fantasy stories in which obviously I don't stick to scientific accuracy. Though, of course, those I can, you know, obsess about historical accuracy or something instead. Getting stuff right is something that I, that's important to me. <laughs> I can tell. That's great. Do you want to give a little teaser about your next book? It's entitled Corsair, and it's coming out next year? That's correct. Uh, the release date I've heard is sometime next May, though that obviously can change. It's a, it's a novel about space pirates, but it's uh, near-future, hard SF, no magical science at all space pirates. And... The space pirates never actually leave the ground. They're hijacking by remote control uh, payloads on their way from the moon to the earth and you know, diverting them for their own, uh, to capture them, to, to sell for themselves. And uh, so my, my main character is a space pirate. He calls himself Captain Black, the space pirate. And is in fact rather annoying about his, con- his use of pirate theme jargon and whatnot. Some of the other characters think he's kind of irritating about that. And then his nemesis is... Uh, Captain Santiago of the U.S. Air Force Space Command. Over the course of the book, you know, Captain Black and Captain Santiago uh, have to uh, join forces against another uh, a mutual adversary. And um, I tried to put in as many pirate tropes as I could. So even though it's about space pirates, there's buried treasure, a hidden island base, a duel. So it's sort of a an homage to pirate literature. Yes, all against a backdrop of Again, I tried to make it as accurate as possible, modern-day space hardware. Well, sounds great. I look forward to getting my hands on a copy. Thank you so much. I've really enjoyed speaking with you and talking about A Darkling Sea. I've been speaking with James L. Cambius, the author of A Darkling Sea. Please go out and buy yourself a copy or gift it to someone you love. You can find out more about Mr. Cambius at his website. What's the address? My personal blog is at www.jamescambius.com. And if you're on Facebook, please visit the New Books in Science Fiction and Fantasy page and click like and consider leaving a review on iTunes or whatever app you're using to listen to this show. I'm Rob Wolf. I'm author of the Kronos Chronicle series. You can visit me at www.robwolf.net. And if you've ever wondered how to survive alone on Mars, you'll want to tune in two weeks from now when I'm planning to speak with Andy Weir, author of The Martian. Thanks for listening. Mm -hmm.